Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. And we're going to start from the 24th verse and read to the 30th. Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And if you haven't noticed, the scripture text is printed inside the bulletin for you. So you can conveniently turn there as well. Mark 7, 24 to 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Zidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the table, eat, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Amen. And that is the word of God. There is absolutely no question that racism is a terrible, terrible sin. It was Wilton D. Gregory who once said, Racism, the belief that one group is superior to another due to race, is a grave moral disease whose recurrence, aggressiveness, and persistence should frighten every one of us. Yes, racism diminishes our Christian witness, but Christians are no longer the only ones who value diversity. For those of us in the Air Force, we know that racial diversity is a valued asset. For example, last month, the Air Force Chief of Staff, General David Goffin, while speaking at the National Character and Leadership Symposium at the United States Air Force Academy, said, We're a global service, and I would offer that we are a global power because of that global reach. Our nation expects us to embrace diversity as a warfighting imperative. Now, General Goldfein was right. Research time and time again shows that racially diverse city centers such as New York and Houston, Chicago, have the highest levels of economic productivity. But what causes this productivity? Having lived in New York City for over 30 years, I can assure you that racial diversity does not ensure racial reconciliation. The two could be and are often very much mutually exclusive. In August of 2007, the Boston Globe ran a shocking article entitled The Downside of Diversity, 
The Harvard political scientist finds that diversity hurts civic life. The following is an excerpt from the article. I want you to listen to it. It has become increasingly popular to speak of racial and ethnic diversity as a civic strength. From multicultural festivals to pronouncements from political leaders, the message is the same. Our differences make us stronger. But a massive new study based on detailed interviews of nearly 30,000 people across America has concluded just the opposite. Harvard political scientist Robert Putnam, famous for his book Bowling Alone, his book on declining civic engagement, has found that the greater the diversity in a community, the fewer people vote and the less they volunteer, the less they give to charity and work on community service projects. In the most diverse communities, neighbors trust one another half as much as they do in the most homogenous settings. The study, the largest ever on civic engagement in America, found that virtually all measures of civic health are lower in more diverse settings. The study is part of a fascinating new portrait of diversity emerging from recent scholarship. Diversity, it shows, makes us uncomfortable. But discomfort, it turns out, isn't always a bad thing. Unease with differences help explain why teams of engineers from different cultures may be ideally suited to solve a vexing problem. Culture clashes can produce a dynamic give and take, generating a solution that may have eluded a group of people with more similar backgrounds and approaches. End quote. The research seems to show that although we've made great strides toward racially diverse cities, workplaces, and schools, the goal of exterminating racism from the human heart, however, is still a long ways away. While cities as a whole may be more racially diverse, neighborhoods, parks, and yes, as Martin Luther King said, churches. This is a very unique setting, but most civilian churches, Luther said, 11 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America, and it still remains so. We are still very much divided along racial lines. Unbelievers may desire to end racism for reasons such as economic productivity, but the best they get is behavior modification through the implementation of federal and local laws, because after all, who wants to break the law? More often than not, however, the heart remains unchanged. <clears throat> Different races may choose to work with each other because they have to, but they often still refuse to live, play, and yes, intermarry one another. Again, the human heart remains unchanged. This is where I believe Christianity shines. Christians work tirelessly to abolish racism because Scripture, for example, Galatians 3.28, unequivocally teach us that there is neither Jew nor Greek in the sight of Almighty God. 
Instead, we are all one in Christ Jesus. Christian missionaries are leaders in laying down their lives for people of other geographic areas, nationalities, and ethnicities. And the New Testament powerfully declares, in fact, the Apostle spends about an entire chapter declaring that Jesus died on the cross so that the dividing wall between ethnicities would be demolished once and for all. Racial reconciliation, therefore, for the believer, for the Christian, is a gospel issue. We often talk about gospel-centeredness so much, it doesn't mean anything to us anymore. But racial reconciliation is a gospel issue. Jesus literally died so that you would love your brother and your sister from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is not merely a mandate for missionaries. Instead, it is a mandate for every born-again child of God. Amen? But now, once we understand that the Bible condemns racism, and I think it clearly does, there's no question about that, Today's scripture passage could be troublesome because at first glance, verse 27 sounds quite racist. Why did Jesus call the gentle woman a dog? Why did Jesus call the Gentile woman a dog? What exactly did Jesus mean when he said, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the dogs? Was Jesus being a racist? In fact, this verse is so troublesome that one translation, the New King James, translates this word in the Greek to little dogs. And scholars try to explain it away by saying it was a term of endearment. But it doesn't really float. I think it's the only translation who tries to do that, but, but it doesn't work. So what did Jesus mean? If racism is a sin and Jesus never sinned, what's occurring here? Now, I would say very clearly Jesus was not a racist. If, if, again, Jesus was Almighty God. And God is no racist. So what do these terms mean? I want you to listen carefully because the terms here are spiritually allegorical. In other words, they are symbolic for spiritual realities, not racial realities. So pay attention. The word children in verse 27 is a reference to all people of God. Not just believing Jews, but people like you and me, who by faith believe in Jesus Christ. According to the New Testament, a person is not a child of Abraham simply because he is born a Jew. Instead, believers in Jesus Christ are the true children of Abraham. Listen to Galatians 3.7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And this is why our Sunday school children sing that famous song with the following lyrics. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons 
had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. It comes from the New Testament. That's right theology. And so children is a reference to believers, God's people, and again, a spiritual reality. God's people all over the world. So if children is a reference to believers, then the term dogs is a reference to unbelievers. People who are not headed to heaven as their final destination. Listen, for example, to John 22, to, I'm sorry, Revelation 22, 14 through 15, written by the Apostle John. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is important to note that at this point in redemption history, the gospel had only gone out to the Jews. So when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is power of God unto salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile, that's really what Jesus is saying here. To the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. And at this time in redemptive history, the gospel had only gone out to the Jews. Later, the Apostle Paul would take the gospel outside of Israel. But by God's design, the gospel went to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. Jesus focused his earthly ministry almost entirely to the nation of Israel. And so it goes without saying that most Jew, non-Jews, most non-Jews at this point were unbelievers during the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. That's just a historical fact. And the woman in this morning's text was Syrophoenician. This meant that she came from the Phoenician tract of Syria. And hence an unbeliever. A dog. Not because of her ethnicity, but because of her spiritual reality. Now what does bread mean? The term bread is a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's a, it's a term encompassing all of gospel ministry, both the ministry of the word and the ministry of healing and presence that occurs with the proclamation of the word. There is a primacy of the proclamation of the gospel, but Jesus also went. He was God in flesh who dwelt among us. He did not proclaim the gospel from afar. He lived among us. And so we too, when we engage in a holistic gospel ministry, not only proclaim the word, but we are present among those who hurt. And so the word of God is bread for the soul. It is solid, substantial, wholesome, and nourishing. Jesus said that man cannot live by bread alone. And so if you are spiritually sick today, chances are you've neglected daily scripture reading. Either sin will keep you from the Bible or the Bible will keep you from sin is how the old saying goes. God's word is bread for your soul. Bread. <clears throat> now it was fitting that Jesus used the term bread for 
spiritual allegory, is it not? This past week on Thursday, our staff went out to Bob's Wellbred Bakery in Los Alamos. I just gave a plug, but I have no connection to them whatsoever, so it doesn't matter. The owner of the business took some bread, I mean some time, to come share with us his journey. It was a fascinating journey. I appreciated it. His journey into bread making at the age of 50, after having lost his job at the height of the 08 recession. And it was inspirational. His, his bakery often has a line going out the door because his b- bread is that good and it's gaining reputation. In making bread, he told us that he sticks with four of the basic ingredients, flour, water, yeast, and salt. Yet the process of creating fine quality bread is a complex labor of love. According to Bob, the process from beginning to end of preparing a loaf of bread for baking takes an excess of 15 hours and as many as 20 hours or more. And and it is mathematically and scientifically involved. So much so that he said if he had known he would be a baker, he would have tried to focus and do better in those subjects in school because it's so scientific to make good bread. Yet the results of such labor, the results are worthwhile. Tantalizing aroma, a crispy burnished crust, all while using the finest yet simplest ingredients. So really an inspirational story. One that I can't attain because I can't, I think I can make an egg, an omelet, but that's really as far as I can go in terms of baking or cooking. But more power to him. He has a gift. But what really caught my attention was when, speaking about bread, Bob called bread the staff of life. That really caught my attention. He called it the staff of life and mentioned that throughout history, every culture around the world had some form of bread. I thought about this. I realized that he was right. Bread is vital. It is the staff of life. And it is no wonder that Jesus so often used this spiritual allegory In fact, in John 6.35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In the New Testament, the gospel is the bread of life. Jesus was not saying that he was literally bread. But as human beings, we get it. Bread is that vital to us, every culture around the world. It is the staff of life. And Jesus was saying, as bread is to your physical body, so I am to your soul. I am your staff of life. Without me, you have no life. In the New Testament, the gospel is the bread of eternal life. Now what is the gospel? You're going to hear me preach this from every single Pulpit message. The gospel is four essential points. You believe in this gospel message. At the moment of your belief in this message, you are saved. Listen carefully. Here's the gospel. Point number one, there is a holy God who loves you, but he is a God of justice. So which means 
Although He loves you, He must send all sinners to hell. Number two, all of us are sinners. We're born that way. The Bible says we are by nature children of wrath. At conception, we have original sin. And so the Bible says that we as sinners deserve hell from Almighty God because God is a God of justice. And that's bad news because we all deserve hell. Point number three, the good news, however, is that God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son, who was fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life, and He died on the cross in your place and in my place. And on the third day, He historically, this is not some children's story tale, He historically resurrected from the grave, demolishing sin and Satan and racism, so that point number four, if you would repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. And the moment you believe in that message, you are born again, the Bible says. Paul says he's not ashamed of that gospel because it alone is the power of God unto salvation. There is no other message, no other way. That is the only way. That is the bread of life. So there you have it. I've exposited the text and now you know what each term means. The term children is a reference to the people of God. The term dogs is a reference to unbelievers. The term bread is a a reference to the ministry of the gospel. Indeed, it could refer very much to the gospel message itself. In stating that bread is the gospel, Jesus also gave us another admonition in a different text. We are not to throw our bread to, to pigs, he would say. To swine. Don't set your pearls before swine. Don't throw what is valuable to those who would only mock Again, spiritual allegory is very powerful, whether it's the use of pigs or dogs. And by eating this bread, the woman and her daughter were not only cleared of demons, but they gained eternal life. Listen to verses 28 and 29. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter was his way of saying, by faith, woman, you've been healed. By faith, you've been saved. Now I want to close here and make one final point. (coughs) You want to know what that is? Here's the point. Please actively, actively share the gospel and pray for your unbelieving neighbors and friends. Actively share the gospel and pray for your unbelieving neighbors and friends. Why? Can you imagine living this life without God and without purpose? Every night an unbeliever goes to sleep without knowing God. And some of you I know are sitting here going, wow, it's harsh. If Jesus' use of the term dog sounded harsh, To you, if 
if that term, or in other places, he uses the word swine or pigs, if, if, if his use of dogs to describe unbelievers sounds harsh to you, then I want you to listen to Ephesians 2.12. The Ephesian church was made up of non-Jews who had recently accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and to this new Gentile population, the Apostle Paul writes, listen, Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Paul did not mince words. When it came to spiritual realities, he declared it as they were. And that's the reality for all of us. We are not going to evangelize and share the gospel and get on mission until we honestly, with ourselves, come to a point and recognize that these people are lost and without God unless we share the gospel with them and they believe. It is that reality that will propel us to be on mission. And the apostle here reminds the church of how terrible and hopeless life is for unbelievers. They may not even recognize this fact. But it doesn't change the fact that it is. Friends, life without Christ is one of alienation, hopelessness, and worst of all, to use the words of the apostle himself, without God in this world. Can you imagine... Living this life without God. You know, we sang a hymn earlier and we take those words for granted. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord our Father. But can you imagine not being able to even sing that? Waking up day after day knowing that there, or at least thinking that there is no God. Living life without hope and without purpose. Full of despair and depression. Your neighbors, your neighbors all around you need this gospel. In explaining the phrase, throw it to the dogs, here's how John Calvin explained it. Listen, by using the word throw, Christ intimates that what is taken from the church of God and given to heathens is not well bestowed. But this must be restricted so that time when it was in Judea only that men called on God. For since the Gentiles were admitted to partake of the same salvations, which took place when Christ diffused the light of his gospel, the distinction was removed. And those who were formerly dogs are now reckoned among the children. Wow. That's powerful. My friends, Calvin was right. Because of the gospel, we are no longer dogs. Because of Christ, we are no longer alienated from God. And because of Christ, we are now children, royal heirs with a seat on the great king's lavish banquet table. And so today I urge you to go and live in the power 
of your God-given identity as children of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today.